What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. It's the Ringer Gambling Show presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here and you can bet on all of the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gambling. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen at the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and up in president-select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ringer Gambling Show. I am joined today by Chris Vernon to break down everything we saw in the NFL Sunday, week eight. It was a fun weekend, a lot of wild covers, but backup quarterbacks, and we're going to dig into all of that. But first of all, massive news just broke moments before we recorded the show with regard to Derrick Henry potentially breaking something in his foot. We've heard rumors that he's out for the season. We've heard rumors that it's eight weeks. We've heard rumors that it's the fifth metatarsal in his foot. We've heard rumors that it's a Jones fracture. And Chris Vernon, I know you talked to some doctors in your life with regard to your experience in the NBA. What are your doctors telling you? I know you just reached out to some of them. Yeah. So, all right. So here's the deal, Warren. I, um, I've covered a lot of guys that have actually had this for fans of the NBA. This is what Zion is going through right now. I covered Mark Gasol when he went through it, when he was playing for the Memphis Grizzlies and with the Jones fracture, if it is, let's just, let's couch this. If it is the Jones fracture, which it seems kind of odd for something to be reported that was so specific, a fifth metal tarsal and a Jones fracture. Typically what happens is the news is much more positive at the beginning than the reality of the situation, right? So everybody comes out and it's usually say, well, it can be six to eight weeks. And one of my buddies, Jeff Stotts, who writes the great blog in street clothes about the NBA, he's chronicled this many times because this is common in NBA players. Kevin Durant has had this, as I just mentioned. Zion has had this. It's much more common in the NFL with receivers. Dez had this, uh, for those that remember, uh, Julio Jones 
had this. Julian Edelman had this at one point. Um, it's typically eight to 10 weeks is like a conservative estimate. Um, and for NBA players, you know, 42 games, according to his database, is the amount of games. Now, they play 82. So they miss over half the season um, when Which they have this. Put that into perspective this. from a month's perspective. How long is the NBA season? Well, I mean, you're starting typically at the end of October, and then the NBA finals are in June, but your your season ends basically in April. You know? Okay, so and from so, October to April. Like, yeah. Basically November to April, more or yeah. less. Yes. So we're you're, right. you're talking you're talking like six months. Yeah. I mean it's a it it's always okay. so three months is half the season. Yeah. That's and right. Three months right now would be into February. That's right. Now Schefter Schefter did come back and report with regard to his tweet on the Jones fracture that it would require surgery and end his season per source. Uh, Ian Rappaport is the guy who came out and said, if the MRI confirms the Jones fracture for Derrick Henry, that's roughly eight weeks of recovery and would mean Derrick Henry could be back in January for the playoffs if they make them. So that's Look, two totally different. Okay. Well, but here's why. So Rappaport's obviously getting his information from a guy that's wanting to remain positive and Schefter's probably getting the reality. I hate to say that, but that's what's true. This is a, this is a bad injury for guys to have. And, and, and running backs don't usually get this. And you got to be very, very careful with Derrick Henry. So let me just explain, Warren. Like, there's two things you can do. Right, you can either go get the surgery, or you can just stay off it and make it immobile, and then you're on crutches, and then you're in a boot. At the best case, you're still off your feet completely for a long time, okay? And you're in a boot. You're not going to do this with Derrick Henry. You're going to get the surgery. Now, the issue becomes, and the reason that this is always a scary injury is because there is a pretty good. Now, I don't want to say I don't want to I want to I don't want to say good. That's probably not the best way to say it. But there's a real risk for re-injury when you have this, um, because what they do is it's in your foot, right, which are small bones, and complications are often linked to like surgical hardware. So they put screws or other implants, and those can bend or they can fail or they can even break. And advancements have gotten a lot better um, in the equipment over the. They've helped a lot in years, but that's always been a scare. Um, you know, look, you're, you're talking, I, I think at the, you would think that now he's a superhuman, but I would honestly say at the very least, you're talking 10 to 12 weeks. If he has surgery, he's not going to play again this year. There's no way. There's yes. no way. So looking, looking at this through a couple of different lenses, I want to make sure we break some of these down. Uh, for everybody that tunes in, because a lot of obviously this has fantasy relevance. This is not a fantasy show. Uh, this has sports betting relevance, which we will discuss as well. But it also has just general football relevance from a play calling perspective. Um, but let's first talk about the contract here. So Derrick Henry is in year two of a four year, $50 million deal. He's scheduled to make 15 million next season at least hit the cap for 15 million uh next season to, in 2022 and 15.5 million the season after that now to put that into a little bit of perspective obviously we've got some other guys that may come up and sign new deals he's already hitting the cap for the highest uh contract in the in the NFL at 13.5 million this season Saquon's at 10. Point Oh, basically. And Melvin Gordon is at 8.9. So Derrick Henry already was at the peak. 
He's going to be hitting it uh, at even more the next couple of years. That being said, they do have only a dead cap hit in 2022 of $6 million. In other words, the dead cap hit, if they were to cut him for some reason before this season, would have been about $20 million. Nobody wants a $20 million dead cap on their contract, but you could get out of his deal before next season, cut him and only have $6 million dead cap or cut him before 2023 and only have $3 million dead cap. So there are some outs that the Titans could take if they don't want to deal with this next season and deal with this $15 million cap hit. If you're suggesting that this is something that could linger, have re-injury. And the reason why it's so relevant for Derrick Henry is because A, his contract is so big. B, that's because his performance has been so dominant. And C, why this is so relevant from a betting perspective uh, this season and how things go the rest of the way is no running back has been utilized more than Derrick Henry. He has over 300 rushing attempts each of the last two years. We are sitting here. It was only week eight of the NFL season. And he already had 219, Chris. He already he was at 219 rushing attempts, and we're not even halfway through the season. Um, he had 378 all of last year. He had 303 in 2019. He's a guy that's been playing a lot, been getting a ton of carries. Um, and people were always wondering: is this the type of thing that's going to cause him to? regress, his production regress, his uh, upside regress, because there's no way somebody can sustain this beating. And so what I wonder is if such an injury was a freak occurrence, like it could have happened to Derrick Henry week one of this season, or it could have happened to uh, another running back week one of this season, or if there's the possibility that this is like the wear and tear and consistent beating that eventually caused something to have an issue. I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah, I mean, look, injury. there's always guys. How many, how many times have we said this, that guys that and you chronicled how many carries he was getting um, guys that are getting like 300 carries a year. We have had a very, very, very long track record of guys just breaking down, right? That it, there's a precipitous drop. Um, and and these are like the best of the best. How many times have we had the best of the best like running backs in the NFL like just drop off a cliff? I mean, we're talking like MVP caliber guys, right? Like you're talking the Sean Alexanders, the Eddie Georges. Like there's always these guys. And when you see the amount of carries that a guy gets. There was Aaron Schatz from uh, Football Outsiders. He used to have this rule of 370. So if you had 370 or more touches in a season, you will end up having a down year the following season. Um, typically, players lose 26% after their 370 carry year. Michael Turner was another one of these guys. I mean, it's just very, very, very difficult. Um, Michael Turner was a famous one. Um, 20 of the 28 guys, and this was from an article in 2011. Think about this. This is 10 years ago. And you think about all the advancements. And at that point, guys were starting to miss games um, every time. And so... 
You know, he certainly applied to this rule of uh, the curse of 370. As they say, what did you say the number was last year? 378? I mean, uh, it's big. Yeah. yeah last, last season, he had 378 rushing attempts and 31 targets. Not to mention the fact that, of course, they've gone to the postseason and he's had more carries in the postseason as well. Yeah, there's either been a decline or an injury the next year. I mean, very, very difficult to pull off um, year after year. And I hate it for him. And this is an absolute killer for the Titans. As you mentioned, he is absolutely essential to what they do. Yeah, so I think a, a few things on that. So if we look at the Tennessee Titans, and we, it, what, what's just crazy to me, Chris, is like in this day and age where you sometimes rotate different backs in, rushing yards by Titans running back so far this season, 937 by Derrick Henry. The next closest guy, 38. That's Jer- Jeremy McNichols. And then they've got Darrington Evans, who has seven, and Makai Sargent, who has Did, four. Hey, hey, so, yo, Warren, let me just stop you real quick. Did you say earlier that he already has 220 carries? Already this season, it's insanity, but he has a total of 219 oh rushing attempts. Oh, my and God. We're See, only they, this is what, games. Yeah, this is what's going to go under the microscope, right? Uh, there was another guy recently that happened. Uh, this happened with DeMarco Murray. Remember, he didn't get his contract with Dallas. I mean, they ran him into the ground that year, and he was never the same. You know, he kind of bounced around for a couple of years. Next thing you know, he's on College Football Saturday on Fox. Um, Derrick Henry having 220 carries in the first, he's on pace for 400 carries. Yeah, even more than last year, which he had 378. What, what's insane What's insane to me is this, is that this is also a team, okay, that say what you want about Ryan Tannehill, previous stops, not being that great, maybe he's average. He is not a bottom five quarterback in the NFL, right? And you also go out aggressively and go after Julio Jones. And so you've got A.J. Brown and you've got Julio Jones and you've got these weapons and you've got Ryan Tannehill at quarterback. You don't need, you don't need to be this run heavy. They're the third most run heavy team in the NFL. It's a lot different if you've got um, Lamar Jackson and you're the Baltimore Ravens, right? Because when you have Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens, you are rotating a lot of different guys through there. You have... This back's got 10 carries one game, and this guy's got 11, and this guy's got seven, right? Like you're rotating guys through the mix. When you have a quarterback like this and you have uh, running backs like this, or, or sorry, you have wide receivers like this, there's really no need to be this run heavy. That being said, um, this is a team that doesn't know any other way. If you look at the numbers of Derrick Henry, he progressively gets stronger over the course of the game. All of these runs that they have on first down and the beginning of the games are not productive at all. They are simply there to establish that you're going to have to bring guys down into the box so that you'll respond to play action so that you can throw the ball over the top of this defense. But you know what the data has shown? that you don't need to do all of that. You don't have to establish the run at that stage to be able to have some success. And it's just crazy. If you look at the teams that are more run heavy than the 
Tennessee Titans. And granted, like we know, this is their identity. There's only two of them, of course. They're the third most run heavy on early downs in the first three quarters. The Chicago Bears and the Houston Texans. We're talking about rookie quarterbacks on both of those teams with, I, I, I love Allen Robinson, but other than Allen Robinson, there's no real talented receivers on those teams either. And yet those are the only two teams that have a higher run rate. I guess my point is that you could have saved some of these rushing attempts, spread them out a little bit, use Derrick Henry a little bit less frequently, but that's not what the Tennessee Titans chose to do. Just for some historical perspective, Warren, if, if he stayed on pace with the amount of carries he's had in the first eight weeks of the season, he would have smashed the, the record. The, 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 the most carries anyone has ever gotten a season, speaking of guys that had a, you know, a precipitous drop, Larry Johnson for the 06 Kansas City Chiefs carried the ball 416 times, okay? There's only five guys in the history of the NFL that have carried the ball 400 times in a season. Eddie George, Eric Dickerson, James Wilder uh, for the 84 Buccaneers, and then second place was uh, Jamal Anderson with the Dirty Birds, the 98 Falcons team. Um, but, I mean, Larry Johnson holds a record at 416, which is just so extreme. He was on pace for... 438? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, it's, that, I that, mean, that's insane. Insane. So pivoting to pivoting to where this puts the Titans, okay, their win yesterday was massive, obviously, against the Colts. That win by the Colts would have swung the balance of everything. I do think this news gives the Colts a little bit of hope still that there's a chance that they can dig themselves out of this hole and get back on track. I mean, they obviously were doing pretty well the couple of games before this happened, but losing this game, and it was a crazy game. There, I have some thoughts on some of the calls in this game that I thought were a little bit absurd, but losing this game was massive for the way that this division goes. Um, there are, There is hope for the Titans. Here's the hope, is that number one, you do have the trade deadline, which is tomorrow at 4 p.m. So you can go out, and we've seen John Robinson, their GM, be very aggressive. That's how they got Julio Jones in getting players for this off se- for this offseason. This is a team, clearly, that's in first place in the AFC South. Like, they're not just going to sit there and feel sorry for themselves that this happened and be like, okay, our season might be over because we lost Eric Henry. Like, I would expect them to be as aggressive as possible to try to acquire another back from free agency, sorry, from the trade market. And there's also guys that are on the practice squads. That is a blessing. That's a blessing, right? That it just so happens for it to happen the day before the trade deadline at least gives you an opportunity to to not just throw in whatever you've got on the roster right now. Right. And there's guys, I, I know Adam Schefter rumored, there's guys like that you could go after potentially like a Tevin Coleman, like a David Johnson, like a Tyson Williams, like a Ronald Jones, like a Mike Davis, like a Rashad Penny. Um, there's also other guys out there that are on practice squads. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing is that this team could also somewhat tweak their identity. Now, I would have more confidence if it was Arthur Smith calling the plays, but they do have talent. They, they have a decent enough O-line. They have a decent enough quarterback, and they've got Julio Noigi Brown. that They could simply shift from less of a run game to more of a passing game, right? Like, that is something that this team could do. And 
whoever, even if they go out and acquire somebody, even if they somehow got Melvin Gordon, let's say, which is very unlikely, but even if they did, I don't know, Adam Schefter rumored that as well. Uh, he put in parentheses, unlikely, but he did mention Melvin Gordon's name. Even if they went after Melvin Gordon, there's no way this team would give him the same number of carries as they were giving Derrick Henry. So regardless of who steps up, they will be by far more of a passing team than they have been with Derrick Henry. That is not necessarily the worst thing in the world for their overall efficiency. Um, losing Derrick Henry, you're not gaining anything. I'm not trying to sugarcoat it, trying to say that like this is going to be a positive because they're going to pass more and have more efficiency. So much of this entire offense was built around Derrick Henry. I'm simply saying that there are ways that you can work around it. If other teams in the league lost their number one running back, it's not the end of the world, no, right? But For it, other teams yeah. in the league, it would not be the end of the world. We've seen the Baltimore Ravens cycle through their number one, their number two, their number three. They're down to like four or five. They're picking up guys off free agency and plugging them in. But those are different teams that are able to, their full entire identity for tev- several years was not built around this one guy like the Tennessee Titans. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, most teams, your team's built around the quarterback. That's how most teams function. Yep. I mean, and this team is built around their running back. I think it's fair to say he is the most indispensable offensive player that's not a quarterback. Yeah, I think, I, I think, I, I don't know. I guess I would say agree with the word indispensable potentially. I would definitely say valuable. He He's yeah. the most valuable non-quarterback to his team. Um but can they overcome that, right? Can they do enough to overcome that? I will note one other thing for the Tennessee Titans, and that is they have on the season ranked number seven in rushing efficiency and number eight in explosive rushing. They've ranked 19th in passing efficiency, um, but they do have the number 11th yards per pass attempt. However, that passing efficiency has come against the number two easiest schedule of past defenses in the NFL. So, so far year to date, the Tennessee Titans have played the second easiest schedule of past defenses. They are about to go up against Jalen Ramsey and the Rams, mm. the Saints immediately after that, week 12. So they got a they get a uh, a buy almost against the Texans. Then they go up against week two, that's week 11. Week 12, they go up against Bill Belichick's Patriots pass defense, which confused a little bit Justin Herbert yesterday. So three of the next four weeks, you're talking about the Rams, the Saints, and then the Patriots. Not the easiest okay. road, to tr- road to hoe. Before we get into all these games, uh, last thing on this. Has it already hit the line? Have they reposted a line? They reposted the line. So what they did was this was Rams minus six and a half painted across the board with a total of 54. They took that down at most spots. A couple spots kept it up and let you keep betting into it. Uh, It reopened seven and a half for the Rams, so moved a point, but this is more valuable than a point that moves from four and a half to five and a half. This is from six and a half to seven and a half. A move completely through the key number of seven, which is the number two most important number in the NFL. And the total took a slight half point move towards the under, uh, down to 53 and a half, although some spots are still at 54. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. 
With the Power's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. It was wild covers from backup quarterbacks yesterday in the games that took place. Let me ask you, of the four biggest ones, which of these stood out to you the most? Mike White and the Jets, Cooper Rush and the Cowboys, Trevor Simeon having to come in for Jameis Winston, who also got injured uh, this weekend, and the Saints beating the Bucks, and Geno Smith is a short favorite, and the Seahawks... Um, with the demolition of their own against the Jaguars. Which of those surprised you the most? As we know, that Bengals one was a massive, massive decision for survivor pools, for Vegas, who took a bath because we had just spoken last week about how, you know, dogs of seven or more hadn't won a game outright this year. So that, that was a big one, right? We finally got one, and it was the Jets. Uh, so I'm going to assume you're going to say the Jets, but let me hear it. For me, I'm going to go with Trevor Simeon. And with the Jets, I can't argue if you would choose that as being the most surprising performance. Um, and, and certainly from the quarterback's execution, that was the best execution. And we'll talk about what Mike White did statistically momentarily. But in terms of overall game result. I I do believe that most people probably, although the betting market did not um, realize this, but the betting market had, I think the look ahead was like three and a half for the Cincinnati Bengals. And then of course, with a big win for them and with the Jets performing the way they did and then losing their quarterback, Zach Wilson, that moot line shifted, reopened at like 10 and a half, which was, and, and obviously closed around 11 and a half. So a seven to eight point move because of Mike White. And the reality was Mike White was never going to be that big of a drop off compared to what Zach Wilson was doing on the field. So why are we moving this many points just for Mike White? It did seem a little bit ludicrous and it especially seems ludicrous doing the Monday morning quarterback thing in hindsight. But for me, the one that was most surprising is that is, is, is what went on with the Saints. Because what you have with the Saints is a team that A, is a home underdog to Tom Brady and the Bucks, right? The defending Super Bowl champion Bucks. And then you have the injury to Jameis at the very beginning of that game, basically, that now you're dealing with a quarterback who's Trevor Simeon. You know, he's been around the league at journeyman, but not really viewed as a great quarterback, who obviously is their third option because Jameis is number one and they didn't have number two available due to due to injury in terms of Taysom Hill. So now they're down to their number three and he just has to get inserted right in the middle of the game. So there's no reps that he's taking. There's no game plan designed around him, which obviously the Jets did totally designed a game plan around uh, Mike White. And again, and we'll talk about that momentarily, but I was just very surprised that Trevor Simeon got inserted into the game and then led this team from behind. I mean, this team was down a couple of different times and he overcame those deficits. Uh, then they were playing from the lead for the, for a large part of the game as well. And he was executing relatively good. I was just surprised that Trevor Simeon performed as well as he did, especially because he's going up against the Bucks defense and there was no time to get him ready for this game at all. 
you got to believe that that team is, they fancy themselves as a Super Bowl contender, whether they are or not. They're not going to ride this out with Simeon and Hill, though. That's a team that we got to look at for the next 24 hours and also going forward, because wouldn't you think they are a prime candidate to go get one of those guys that is available, that has taken a lot of snaps and had success in the NFL, whether that's Cam Newton or I'm going to throw another name out there because I've always kept this in the back of my head. A couple of months ago, I saw this profile on uh, Fox or ESPN and they had gone down to Alabama where Phillip Rivers was coaching high school football. And they were like, so if somebody calls you after there's an injury, you're going to come back. And he was like, you know, I'd have to, you know, I'm probably not in shape now, but I've certainly considered that. Well, and I was like, I'm thinking to myself, we're seeing Phillip Rivers play football again, right? There was never like some official retirement of walking away. Like, I think he, he went and he coached high school football and the high school football season's going to be done. And his phone's going to ring. There's no way around it. One of these teams that was built that thought they could, you know, really do something is not just going to let their season go in the crapper. And so keep an eye out for like either a Rivers or a Newton or somebody's going to sign these guys. Well, I think right? the Saints especially. Came, yeah, I think the Saints came out and said that they're not interested in going after Cam Newton. I think that's already been rumored to hit the hit the street. I don't know about the Philip Rivers thing. Definitely interesting. I remember the same one. I mean, yeah. I'm intrigued by, by he's that not one. done. He misses it. He misses it. Trevor you know? Simeon he, was not very good yesterday. If you look at his, his overall statistics, which is not particularly surprising. Um, he didn't throw any picks though. He only threw for 159 pass, uh, passing yards and his completion percentage above expectation was minus six, which is in the lower spectrum of the league. But, but it's all the, relative. It's all relative, Warren. You figure they're going to get their ass kicked once Simeon comes exactly. in. That's why it was the most surprising to me, boys, because the other thing was Sean Payton kept throwing the football. Like he could have just flipped up to the run. The first series that Simeon gets in there, I think all three downs were passes and then they punted, of course. But like Sean Payton did not do what a lot of other NFL coaches would do. Be like, oh shit, we've got a, a slight lead. Or it was either tied or they were up by a small margin when Simeon got inserted into the game. Some of these coaches would be like, all right, damn it, we're going to just have to start switching over to the run against the number one run defense in the NFL of the Bucs. No, they they continued to pass the ball with Simeon, got mixed bag results as we would expect. The defense, of course, stepped up, confused Tom Brady, took a, got multiple takeaways and, uh, and, and performed extremely well. But the guy that, you know, if we're looking at a individual performance from one of these backup quarterbacks that was the most impressive. I mean, you could say Geno Smith. He led the NFL with his, uh, I don't want to say led the NFL, but his uh, passer rating was 128. His completion percentage above expectation did lead the NFL at 24.7, but he did not throw for 200 yards. This defense was terrible from the Jacksonville Jaguars. I mean, this is another rant that we could have on Urban Meyer off of a bye week with extra time to prepare, going up against a bad Seahawks defense, and you can't do anything the entire game. They scored that touch on what? With less than two minutes left in the game. Um, and as as producer Mike was indicating, like they did not even attempt the two-point conversion late to try to cut the game to to a two-score game, albeit they were there's only like 90 seconds left in that game. So it's not like they could realistically come back, but it's just the overall effort, preparedness, care about trying to come out there and perform well. That is 
that is, I don't want to say a death knell, but off of a bye week, that's what you're really putting up uh, against that type of a defense with a couple weeks to prepare. Garbage. But the guy, individual guy that was ironically the most interesting, here's the crazy stat line that I saw from one of these quarterbacks yesterday, is that Mike White was the only quarterback to throw for over 400 yards, which was the obviously the most in the NFL. But his intended air yard, so the distance his passes traveled on all passes thrown, whether they were caught or not, was only 4.1 yards, which was the <laughs> lowest in the NFL. So this guy threw a pass average length of four yards, but he gained a total of 405 yards on the day and threw for three touchdowns. You uh, know he- what it speaks to? It speaks to what we were saying a couple of weeks ago, and I, I mentioned this from the Manning cast, which is these young quarterbacks or the backup quarterbacks when they come in. The idea from these defenses is, come on, throw it. Throw it. Throw it back here. We dare you to throw the ball. And it takes an intense amount of discipline to dink and dunk. It really does. Nobody wants to do that. That's not fun. We talked about it with that game that uh, Aaron Rodgers played. It was the Sunday. It was that broadcast, Monday night broadcast that the Mannings did. And he was saying, you know, it takes a while to learn this, but you're watching Aaron and he's just going to say, all right, if you're going to leave those safeties back, you're going to leave the two safeties deep. And and I know you want me to throw it down there and take a chance. I'm just going to dump it off to Aaron Jones and we're just going to take what you give us over and over and over and over again. And I mean, you make it easy on Mike White. You know what I'm saying? When you're letting him complete passes four yards down the field, uh, they want you to throw it down the field and make that mistake. You saw it last night with Cooper Rush, right? He, he threw one ball across the middle. Both safeties could have picked the ball off. Both of them. <laughs> the one he tried across the middle to Dalton Schultz. That's what they want you to do because they know you're not reading through every progression. You know where you want to go to the ball. So I give Mike White credit. I mean, they were also without Corey Davis, their number one wide receiver in that game. And they had to throw the ball. You know, they, they, when you're talking about average pass depth of nine, a 4.1 yards, he's throwing the ball a lot to Michael Carter, the running back who led the team with 14 targets and nine receptions for 95 yards. But he was getting production out of Jamison Crowder and Elijah Moore and just a variety of different guys that were catching these balls, making yardage gains after the catch. I mean, because Mike White's average pass, like to, to Carter averaged, all these guys averaged double digit um, yards per reception. So it was it was an impressive overall performance in it, especially against the Bengals' defense. And now you're going to go up. The trick with them is they've got a short week to go up against the Indianapolis Colts on Thursday Night Football, which we'll talk about on the Ringer Gambling Show a little bit on Wednesday with Benjamin Solak. But yeah, these rookie these these guys that were called in to step up these backups. I think one of the interesting elements to this too, Chris, is that. There's not much tape on these guys when they get called in to do something. And we have seen coaching is a massive factor in wins and losses of games. And if you can coach up your guys for one week to do something, play within themselves, and you're going up against a defense that doesn't really know what to expect out of these guys, that is a big edge to offenses. And that's why some of these guys in a one week, their very first start, end up performing pretty well against the spread. 
It's interesting because uh, I saw our cohort, uh, Kevin Clark, uh, from The Ringer post yesterday that Cooper Rush beat out Mike White for the two thousand in the 2019 Cowboys, <laughs> right? And, and then both of them have these crazy wins as, uh, as quarterbacks yesterday. And I've got to ask you about that Cowboys-Vikings game last night because, you know, you had this whole weekend... I, as a Cowboys fan, was, of course, updating constantly. Like, what is Rappaport saying? What is Schefter saying? What are the guys from Dallas saying? Um, You got these quotes from C.D. Lamb and Ezekiel Elliott on Saturday where they say, I'd give it like a 90% chance that Dak plays. Um, And I'm thinking to myself, okay. And then they keep pushing it back. They say, oh, he went through a workout, but he was a little sore. Oh, he's traveling. Oh, now it's going to be a game-time decision. Oh, now it's all going to depend on his pre-game workout. So now we're going to find out what, like an hour or two before the game. And yet the line flipped once it became real to someone out there that Dak Prescott was not playing. Um, And then all this news is coming out Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And I'm sitting there waiting to find out is Dak Prescott. And I think fantasy owners were gamblers were. Is Dak Prescott going to play or not? And yet that line was telling us he's not, right? Because it's not moving. And so you, you make your living off stuff like this. Do the books just always know? Should I just stop paying attention to whatever news is coming out about this and just pay attention to that line? Because that that line is going to know first uh, and it's going to tell the story. And when it was never moving, I kept thinking like, damn, man, why isn't this moving with all this positive news about Dak possibly playing on Sunday night? And then, of course, they announce, you know, whatever, an hour and a half, two hours before the game, he's not playing. Well, so there's there. this is I'm going to try to break this down quickly or concisely because there is a lot to talk about if we really wanted to dig into the details here. I'll just say this. They give every anybody a mic to talk about things on podcasts and 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 post things on Twitter. So there's just a variety of people making comments about this game and the line movement and who they thought was going to start. Um, th- these people have no clue what they're talking about. They don't know what's going on in the betting marketplace with regard to like the actual bigger betters that move the market. Um, and they don't under they, they just don't have very good sources. So the bottom line on this game was that. When the Thursday practice occurred, it did not look like Dak responded very well to it. And when that news started to seep out, immediately the line started to shift towards the Minnesota Vikings. And they never actually took the line off the board at most spots. A couple of sharp offshores took off the board, but they reposted it relatively quickly. But this line took action because so many people, the public was all over the Dallas Cowboys, that the books viewed it, I believe, as, well, at least now we get a little bit of Vikings money in here to help balance out all the public that was betting on the Dallas Cowboys before this news of this injury becoming an issue because Dallas was off of a bye week. So the line starts to shift all the way to two and a half and obviously eventually to three. And we're sitting here not knowing then what is going to happen. When there were some potential positive reports on, what was it, Saturday night um, that he's traveling with the team 
And I saw some reporters tweeting out, oh, does this look like a guy who's not going to play? And he's like carrying his like luggage bag and all this type of stuff. Um, like there was a little bit of a shift back towards the Viking, uh, back towards the Cowboys, but it was marginal. It was still stuck on the three and it slowly was shifting towards the Cowboys. But, but it was a, it was a matter of juice, not really shifting the market that much. I will tell you this, what did not get a lot of coverage was Adam Schefter on the fantasy football show on Sunday morning. He was asked to give his projected um, sleeper pick and his projected sleeper pick was Cooper Rush. And he said, it is my belief that Dak Prescott will not be playing in this game. It's going to be Cooper Rush. I think Cooper Rush is going to do well enough and exceed some people's expectations, and it's not going to be Dak. I, I don't know how that wasn't like the number one story on all the networks out there that Adam Schefter, it's not that what he was doing from a fantasy perspective per se, but his comments about it certainly yeah. showed that this is a guy who does not think Dak Prescott is playing, yet that line stayed at three. And I can tell you when the line stayed at three, I personally did not add to it. But other guys out there added more to the Minnesota Vikings at that point. The goal of betting is to get ahead of line moves. You will win more games than you lose. You will make money at the end of the day if you beat line movement. That's just the simple fact here. And so there were guys that were betting Minnesota minus three or on the money line, even though the line stayed at three because People thought, some people thought at 1 p.m. and at 1.30 and at 2 p.m. and at 4 p.m. even that Dak might be playing. Obviously, once it was announced that he was not going to be playing, the line goes all the way up to four and a half, at which point anybody who got in early at Minnesota plus one or pick them had a nice opportunity to get a no sweat middle and take the Minnesota Vikings, sorry, the Dallas Cowboys close to post at four and a half. And the easier bet, of course, at the end of the day was to ultimately simply take the under in this game. And real quick, I thought that that performance was absolutely embarrassing, but a real testament to what they are building in Minnesota with Mike Zimmer and Kirk Cousins. This is a team in the modern passing era of football where offense wins games, defense does not, where passing wins games, rushing does not, that wants to hitch its wagon to a defense and a run game and does not want their quarterback to go and step out of the box despite the fact that this quarterback is making $30 million this year. He is the number two highest paid quarterback in the NFL. And when you look back at the statistics of what he did in this game, at one point, he had thrown eight of 23 attempts behind the line of scrimmage that did nothing. They did jack shit. They were not successful whatsoever. All these screen passes, the Cowboys are great defending screen passes thrown behind the line of scrimmage. When Kirk threw beyond 10 air yards, when he just pushed the ball down the field, he was four of five for 101 yards. That was 20 yards per pass attempt, and he threw a touchdown. But they weren't trying to throw the ball down the field. All they were doing was this screen pass shit. So absolutely, there was a big-time issue with 
the way this team is calling games with Clint Kubiak, their offensive coordinator, with why are you paying a quarterback like a Kirk Cousins, the money that he's getting, if you're not even going to utilize him, how do you not, I get, let me, I'm trying to be as, um, as polite as possible. I get the strategy, Chris, if you think Dallas has a quarterback and they can't do anything in the game. And so you're going to try to play not to lose. I, I get that a team might think that this is the right way to play. Like, okay, we, we're not, but once you get into the game and you see how it's playing out and you see that this other team isn't going away and you see that your passes behind the line of scrimmage aren't doing anything, you got to adjust, dude. Well, I don't thing, know what more, the fuck more, you're doing making adjustment. More. You know, I'm a huge Cowboys fan. There was a maximum amount of points the Cowboys were going to score last night, <laughs> right? I mean, you scored 30 points, you're winning the game, right? Uh, obviously, if you're scoring 21, you win the game last night. And that's Kirk Cousins football. Dink, dunk, dink, dunk. And they've looked a lot different these last couple of years since Kevin Stefanski left. Yep. To go to the uh, Cleveland Browns, right? Um, the level of explosion. I know, I know people that bet the Vikings win total over. I personally did not. It might get there because they've had a couple of wins prior to this. I, I feel bad for those people having to watch this team the rest of the year and hope that they keep winning games. I don't know what the Vikings are going to do from here on out. I just know that watching that game on national TV last night was painful as shit. I also know that Mike Zimmer- Not for me. Well, for you, yes. Any Cowboys fan or Cowboys backer, Cowboys backer probably love the result, right? Love the result. But you got to even admit that watching the Vikings team, that offense was painful. That's what I'm talking about. Like that team is gross. And the only way that they actually do anything in games is if they fall behind by a big enough margin that they have to pass to get back into games. If they're throwing the football on first down. I spoke about that on the Friday show, I think with, with, uh, with house potentially about this team is great when they throw the football on first down, but they're not going to, they're just going to run the football on first down or throw these short little screen passes that don't do anything. It's one of the most frustrating teams to watch. And a lot of sports betters used to just back Mike Zimmer blindly because he was good at covering the spread. And this was like a couple of years ago, two, three, four years ago, that ship has sailed, dude. Mike Zimmer is not the guy any longer. Mike Zimmer is is his defense isn't his defense has been good this year, but it's not been as good as advertised or at least the public perception of his defense. And this offense just does nothing but adopt his mentality of playing not to lose, not to make his defense look bad, keep the ball, keep it away from the other team. So my defense is on the sidelines resting. It's just, it's just. A bad combination of he and Kirk Cousins. Let's just put it that way. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. 
They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Speaking of gamblers being mad at coaches, I mean, public enemy number one has got to be Sean McVay. I mean, that was just a despicable non-cover for people that took 16 and a half, 38 to nothing. And they give up 22 points in five minutes. I think I read that uh, the previous 31 quarters, the Texans had scored 21 points and they scored 22 points in five minutes to make that thing 38 to 22. And all of a sudden, I mean, I can't believe anybody would be backing the Texans, but certainly at least the teases didn't get busted. I'm sure there were a million people that had Rams minus nine and a half, um, you know, thrown in some kind of a teaser, but good grief, 38 to nothing. And somehow you don't cover. That's just incredible. Uh, McVeigh's got to be a uh, public enemy. Number one for at least some of those people out there that had a lot riding on the Rams who felt amazing about it until this. <laughs> I mean, that is a catastrophe. I really legitimately feel bad. As bad as I felt for the people that had Florida State on Saturday, I felt bad for people that uh, if there were people that laid the, the those points at the Rams. I I I generally don't. I'm sorry. I know some of you guys are listening, and you're probably feeling feeling bad, and you're like, "Damn it, Sherp, what the fuck?" But um, if you're gonna lay 17 points or whatever you did in an NFL game, like I don't I don't really feel bad for you. I generally <laughs> I I generally root for underdogs. Um, I generally root for the upset story. Um, I will never root for this Texans team though. Like I, th they are an embarrassment if they can, I know that was garbage time. So the defense is playing a little differently, but there, there's no doubt in my mind, if this team wanted to play a little bit better offensively in the beginning parts of games, they could, they just choose not to. And I get it. They're trying to lose games. And when the game is completely out of control to avoid massive embarrassment, they'll try to do a little bit of things or they'll finally in the fourth quarter, uh, go for it on fourth down when they should have, they, they had those, they were presented with those same situations in the same decision-making opportunities earlier in the game when the analytics and simple logic would dictate this is a go for it time, but they intentionally don't because they're not trying to win. And then when it's out of control and it doesn't hurt them from a scoreboard, uh, from a win-loss perspective, they'll go for it. So I, 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 I mean, in a way, it's a beautiful disaster and they're going to do really well tanking, but it's, it's gross to watch and I prefer not to. Um, and so I didn't even watch a second of that comeback late. Uh, until you told me that, Hey, they ended up coming back and getting a backdoor cover and covering the spread here. Um, it, it just wasn't even in my mindset. I do know some sharp guys bet the, the Texans here. And obviously they can thank their lucky stars should not have earned that cover. Yes. The Rams fans should have earned theirs. 
but um, I don't necessarily feel bad for somebody laying that many points on a on an NFL game. Well, and you were talking about how they, they want to be bad and they're going to get a high draft pick. You'd, you'd assume try to find a fan, franchise quarterback. But uh, last week when I was looking at Todd McShay's uh, mock draft for what it's worth, there's only a few quarterbacks that are even like projected as first rounders as of now. And that may even change. You got Malik Willis, who's the kid at Liberty, Matt Corral, who's the kid at Ole Miss, and they actually play each other. This weekend. So for NFL, I bet there'll be a lot of, yep. oddly, there'll be a bunch of NFL draft uh, gurus going to uh, Hugh Freeze's return to Ole Miss, no less, as he is now the coach at Liberty. But with his quarterback and then Matt Corral, uh, and then Kenny Pickett, who's the quarterback at Pitt, he had him in there. And I believe that's it. Uh, oh, at the very end, he had Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati. So, I mean, like, you're talking three or four guys, none of which are at, like, the very top of the draft. So, this isn't, this isn't the, the, the like, the draft to tank out to make sure you can get Trevor Lawrence or even Justin Fields or even Mac Jones or Zach Wilson. Even I mean, like, it's not, this is not a quarterback-heavy class. So, I don't know if I, uh, if I wouldn't just try to compete. I think that that ship has sailed. I don't know that they have the ability to do that. I, it's funny. The guys, I, I think that somebody there, I don't want to like make any statements, but like it definitely appears that there are people there that are, have burner accounts talking all about off season about how they're making all the right moves. You can't imagine, like they're doing a great job of building this team, like praising the GM, Nick Casario. Oh, and good it's just grief. Like, what the hell? Are, you know, I, I'm like in- investigating this account. Like, is this, is this, <laughs> is this a burner account? Who the fuck is this? There's um, no way, right? What, There's no what, way this person exists. No, exactly. But, um, one team that I did want to mention that we haven't discussed yet was the Chargers out of the bye week and their performance against the New England Patriots. Um, That was interesting to me in a couple of respects. Number one, thankfully I got the over, uh, which seemed like it easily should have cashed. I think it was their 21 points scored in the first quarter of that game. Ends up getting over late. um, And I covered with the Patriots. But my issues with the game because I care first and foremost about how my bets are doing, but secondarily, like watching the NFL, analyzing it, um, what the Chargers were doing was unfortunate to me because this was a team that went into their bye week and made the comment that we've got to try to avoid third downs. We've got to be more efficient on early downs. It's something that we're going to be focusing on. We can't be facing all these third down situations. Of course, we saw what happened against the uh, Baltimore Ravens with all the third down attempts that they were forced into and they couldn't be, they weren't successful and ended up backfiring. And this had been a strategy all season long. We've been talking about it on this podcast for weeks now, ever since week one of the season, how they are throwing the ball too short and not being as aggressive on these early down plays. And lo and behold, we, we see a team that comes out the gates, looks great the first couple of drives, and they put up some touchdowns. And after that, it's like this team lost their identity a little bit of what they were trying to change and their aggressiveness that they are trying to uh, just de- depict out on the football field and got back into this more 
conservative type approach on these early downs, which ended up, of course, costing them. Now they didn't have, they, they had 12 third down attempts, which was less than what the Patriots had. They only converted four of them, which was a problem, but this was just a team that did not seem like they had a very good strategy on early downs. And Bill Belichick, of course, does things defensively that's going to confuse a team. But that was another one, Chris, to me, that was a bit frustrating from a coaching staff, much like the Jaguars, of you have two weeks to prepare for this game. And you are only putting up, what was it? I, I know they scored the, the uh, touchdown late with like 40 seconds left, but you're only putting up 17 points at home um, for like 59 minutes of that game. Um, with Justin Herbert as your quarterback and all these players healthy and Austin Eckler is in fact up in the lineup. It just was a very underwhelming performance for this Chargers offense, in my opinion, with that much time to prepare from a coaching staff that we expect better from than the Jacksonville Jaguars, right? Like everybody keeps talking about Brandon Staley, this Brandon Staley, that how he goes for it on fourth downs. Like that, that, that hype has definitely cooled a little bit and now kind of and and what I believe to be a much more impactful element of football games is early down performance. How are you performing on early downs? I know it's great to be great on third down. And Justin Herbert is a stud. You ask him to pass the ball. Most of the time he's going to be accurate. He's going to convert a first down when he has the chance to on these third down attempts. And I know it's great to be aggressive and go for it on fourth down, but like you've got to build your game around more than just that. You've got to figure out a way to be aggressive and efficient on early down so that you minimize the times that you would have to go for it on fourth down because you're not even in third down nearly as much. And I just feel like this team still hasn't gotten to that point that they are going to take it upon themselves to be uber aggressive on first and second down with a quarterback like Justin Herbert. I actually thought about you last night because... um Look, obviously, I was thrilled to to win a football game with Cooper Rush being the quarterback. But if that wasn't third and eight fest, <laughs> 2021, I don't know what was. I swear to God, every third down was either third and eight or third and 12 or third and 16. It was unbelievable. Even at the very end of the game, right? It was third and 16. And then you had that incredibly bizarre call on Minnesota, the double timeouts. Oh yeah. I, I, I never even seen I, that. I, don't know. Like, I actually, I tweeted something that the, uh, uh, football hand, a Twitter handle called football zebras mentioned. Um, and I guess they work with different refs and study refereeing. That was crazy. And, that thing. and they said that the penalty for defensive delay of game for consecutive timeouts is only there in cases where the official accidentally grants the timeout, yeah. which should never happen. Had the, <laughs> had the timeout not been granted, which it wasn't in this case, there is no foul and the request is simply ignored. It's so, third and 16. And you know, for people that didn't see the game, third and 11, they throw a dump off. It's like a two-yard dump off to Ezekiel Elliott, who just blows through everyone yeah. and barely gets 11 yards. There's no chance you get 16 on the screenplay. Like, none. So it really did have a massive impact. Third and 11 is infinitely more manageable with a backup quarterback because you can pull off that crap than third and 16 is, you know? Yep. Wow. Absolutely. 
Uh, but anyway, yeah, the whole damn game was third and long. The whole game. It was bad. Uh, all right. So what, by virtue of the Chargers losing, Warren, that division got even tighter. I mean, you got that whole division within a couple of games of each other. And one of those teams is playing tonight. The team that's actually in last place in the AFC West, the Kansas City Chiefs, <laughs> who we all predicted. They are playing tonight. They never cover anything. And now they're laying double digits against the New York Giants. I mean, I cannot imagine the amount of people that are going to be betting on the Chiefs tonight. And yet, is this the game they finally do emphatically cover a number? I I mean, this is this feels like one of those you bet on the Chiefs and it's like, what the hell am I doing? Like they never cover. Why did I lay Ted with them? But Honestly, on the surface, it's like, come on, the Giants suck. Yeah, so look, this line, if you guys are looking at this line when the podcast comes out, right now we're recording it. It's 10 and a half at most spots, but actually at one of the sharpest offshores, it's it's sitting at 11. This line obviously opened up at 10 everywhere. The look ahead was 13, but it opened at 10, obviously, with the Giants' performance last week, coupled with what the Chiefs have been doing, and they got blown out by the Tennessee Titans. They opened this thing at 10. It sat there at 10 for a while, a while. And what you would uh, take away from that, if you're reading the lines and you've got a lot of experience doing that, is that there was a clear opportunity for the sharp groups that would actually move the number. Just so you know, like if if a bunch of the public was betting the Giants, it's not going to drop below 10. But if a sharp group really wanted to smash that, they're going to jump over one another to get in line to take 10. And that sucker is going to go down to nine half, nine, eight and a half. It's not going to take much once it moves off to 10 to go to eight and a half. This thing never dipped, but it stayed at 10 for days, barely dipped to nine and a half for maybe 24 to 36 hours at some spots. And then it went back to 10 and then went to 10 and a half. And now is 10 and a half with, like I said, 11. Um, that shows you that like the sharp guys, the sharp groups are not really actually interested in this road dog of the New York Giants. And they're actually hoping and thinking that, and I don't know how much of them has actually bet on the Kansas City Chiefs yet because I haven't looked in detail this morning. But what I can tell you is that there's not as much of an appetite for the Giants as double-digit underdogs, even though the Kansas City Chiefs have not been covering these types of spreads at all this season or even dating back into last season. The New York Giants are, be- are a better team on the road. The New York Giants um, are getting back a couple of their receiving weapons in this game. They're not going to get everybody back. They're not going to have Saquon Barkley back, but they are getting a little bit healthier offensively. And Jason Garrett, I mean... I'm I'm always going to have, I'm going to observe first, make judgments second, and be willing to modify my observations and judgments constantly. That's what you have to do. I've made fun of Jason Garrett a ton in the past. He has actually, over the last several weeks, done some things that have been semi-impressive uh, with this Giants offense in terms of creativity and aggressiveness. All right, uh, Warren, let me just say this. You go through Cleveland or you go through uh, Kansas City. Cleveland, good team. Baltimore, good team. Chargers, good team. At Philly, they they beat them 42 to 30. 
So they beat them by double digits. Buffalo, good team. Washington stinks. Beat them 31-13 at Tennessee. Good team. So, I mean, they, they've only played two bad teams. And they beat them both by double digits so far, right? They they beat the they beat Philly at Philly by double digits, and they beat Washington by double digits. The two times they played NFC East teams. The rest of those teams are all good teams, or at least pretty good teams that they played this year. So despite the fact that they're three and four this year, it's not like the Chiefs are losing to rat teams. Correct. You know. Correct. You know. Or, or not covering against rat teams. Like they have covered against the sorry teams. Absolutely correct. Now, Washington, you know, in in the games that Philly was a little different, Washington could have been better. They had some of their own interceptions and 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 issues inside the red zone themselves. But of course, the Kansas City Chiefs did as well, and that game was certainly much closer than the final score of thirty-one to thirteen um, indicated. One of the things that we have seen from the Kansas City Chiefs uh, offense this season has been a reluctance to take what the defense is giving them. We know that defenses are lightening the box. No offense plays lighter boxes this season than the Kansas City Chiefs. Six men in the box is become much more standard for defenses that go up against them. They're adding an extra guy outside the box into coverage, um, and they're not sending blitzes. They're not sending pressure, and that's certainly been impacting the Kansas City Chiefs offense because they're still trying to play the standard offense, which is let's push the ball down the field to Tyree Kill, let's not run the ball very much, high, super high pass rate, and let's try to get after these guys offensively with an uber-aggressive passing offense. And what you see is Patrick Mahomes, you know, running back and scrambling around the pocket and buying all this time to try to throw the ball down the field. But they've got so many guys in coverage that it's hard for these receivers to uncover. So he's throwing the ball still into tighter windows far too often that end up having some deflections and things of that nature. The the reality of it is there are some times, and this might sound completely crazy, but like more of an approach like Andy used with Alex Smith would work a little bit better against these defenses that they're now facing. Defenses have made an adjustment for how they're playing the Kansas City Chiefs with the shell coverage, with taking away the deep shot, with not blitzing Patrick Mahomes. So the same type of offense that you were utilizing last year and the year before that had success against the defenses that you were playing is not going to have the same level of efficiency this year. It's impossible to. It's absolutely impossible to perform that same level of efficiency when defenses are playing completely different to take that away. So you as an offense must adjust. Get the ball out quickly. Simple dropbacks, read the couple of guys, get the ball out quickly underneath. I know your receivers, you haven't drafted guys that are going to be as adept with precision route running and those types of things. Hand the ball off, get the ball out quickly. They've been a great offense for most of the season. Last week's game against the Tennessee Titans, Andy Reid saw something different. I saw something different. It did not look nearly the same. I think they're going to be able to make some adjustments. For the most part this season, this has still been an exceptional offense that is the lowest in the NFL in punt rate, that has the highest points per game for any team in the league that was 
having ridiculous turnover rates like they were doing. I mean, they were, prior to the game against the Titans, they were fifth most points per game, yet they had double the turnovers of any other team in the top five in scoring per game. Obviously, it's hard to score when you're turning the ball over. You get zero points on those drives. So extremely impressive what this offense had been doing. I think they just need to play within themselves. It's going to be interesting to note that the New York Giants blitz at an above average rate on early downs in the first three quarters, yet get the lowest pressure of any team in the NFL. So even if they if they don't change and blitz a lot less, if they keep doing what they're doing, Patrick Mahomes is going to crush these guys because they get no pressure on him at all. And he's going to be able to have time to survey the field and find opportunities to throw the football to. But I absolutely hope that they've made a couple of tweaks here offensively to take advantage of the way defenses have been playing them to be prepared in case the Giants defense ends up playing them that way. I am looking forward to it uh, just to see what they look like and if they do beat the crap out of another uh, another team. If, if, if they do, then maybe, uh, you know, by virtue of the Chargers uh, losing and uh, the you know, the Broncos and the Raiders, like, you know, we could look up and they go on some kind of long win streak. And it's like, remember early in the season when we started to poke holes in the Chiefs and we forgot that they have Patrick Mahomes in, the, in that offense? So this would this is certainly a game where their offense could get really back on track in a massive way, especially after scoring measly three points against Tennessee last week. Warren, it is always a pleasure. I will talk to you next week. Yeah, that'll do it, guys. Great show today. Interesting discussion about Derrick Henry. Sucks for the Titans fans. Uh, Great discussion about some of these backup quarterbacks winning games. A lot of fun with you, Chris, and that'll do it for our show today. So thank you to everyone for listening. We will be back Wednesday with Ben Solak to take a deep look at all of the games coming up for this weekend. Thank you, Chris. And obviously, thank you to producers Mike Wargon and Craig Holbeck for producing the show. We will see you guys on Wednesday. Wednesday.